You're listening to the Theology Mom podcast. And now, here's Theology Mom, Krista Bontrager. I love that part. I know, right? Hey, everybody. It is All the Things. We are here with All the Things, the show where we talk about everything related to God, the Bible, and real life. I am Monique Dusan. And I am Krista Bontrager, also known as Theology Mom. Hello. Hello. There we go. And yeah, there we are. <laughs> Sometimes Sorry we don't really. Too, you know. too many buttons to press. Yeah, well, maybe that's a good time to introduce uh, Bob, our official button pusher. And uh, since we're live, we're just going to go with whatever it is. So there he is. Yes, Mr. yes. Mr. Handsome. So, uh, and Abby is not with us right now. She's away helping at Vacation Bible School. Vacation Bible School, which happens during the day and not at 6 p.m. at night. On the Saturday. Yeah, which so, means... where are we? It's Friday. That's right. So we are um, going to premiere the show at the normal time at 6 p.m. on Saturday. But that's because we are at the C.S. Lewis play. Yes, I hope they talk about Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe. I don't know what they're going to talk about. It's a one-man show with Max McLean, I guess he's some actor, and he does a one-man show uh, where he plays C.S. Lewis and kind of does highlights from his books. So we'll see what it's like. Uh, my mother went. She said it was wonderful. So uh, taking you and Abby, and we're all going to go down there and yep. with join up with our friend Lori Stewart. Who and, has been on our show. Yes. And uh, see that? So maybe we'll have a, a report about the play next week. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. He was um, what I'm finding out is that he was an awesome apologist, a Christian apologist. Yeah, that was new information for you. I just know him from The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe because I really enjoy that. <laughs> because you're really sort of a child. Just, you know, six years old. <laughs> yeah. Living in a big girl body. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but yes, he was one of the greatest apologists, arguably the greatest apologist of the 20th century. And uh, did a lot of other writings besides his fictional works for children uh, in the realm of defending the faith. So uh, I think we're going to get a little f- sampling of that uh, on Saturday night. So I'm looking forward to that. And we should probably encourage people to check out our show from last week. Boy, it's it's done really well. Yeah, and that's awesome. Um, last week we spoke with Cynthia and I'm going to Hamp- Hampton. Hampton. Yes. yes. Oh, sorry, Cynthia. Um, But she's an ex-member of the Watchtower Society, also known as the Jehovah's Witness. Yeah. And she really gave some important information in interacting with Jehovah's Witnesses and um, what some of the struggles are that they face and how we can just be light and hope for people in that in that community. And what I love about the interview is that it while we did cover some of their beliefs, uh, we also took some time to focus on their culture and their mindset to try to understand um, why it's so challenging to talk to them. And for me, I felt like I came away from that conversation with so much more empathy mm-hmm. for for people who are Jehovah's Witnesses and to just have a stand of more patience, more love, more kindness and when and maybe even a little more courage in engaging them. Yeah, we have a Jehovah's Witness um, Kingdom Hall right down the street from our house. And 
I've been praying as I go by, like almost every time I'm like, Lord, just bring freedom and light here. Yeah. I don't know that I'm at the place of opening my door at like 830 in the morning. I am <laughs> a, a work in progress. OK, <laughs> the Lord is not through with me yet. So you can you can pray for me about that. But um, yeah, aside from that, yes, I think that our continued prayers for some of the things that they are facing, just living within that community and the structure of that. And then what it means to come out of that yeah. is really important. So be sure to check out the replay. You can go on uh, my website, uh, theologymom.com slash all the things and see our full archive there of, of past shows and as well as additional resources and links yeah. uh, for each show. All right, well, let's talk about the rundown cool. for what we're doing today on today's show. I'm not really sure what we're doing. I just, you know, I kind of rolled out of bed and showed up. No, no, <laughs> that's not true. No, no. Okay, so first off, we are going to be talking about biblical illiteracy. Yeah. And looking at, looking at the pews, the pastors, universities, teens. Yeah. Are we in an era of era of biblical illiteracy? Yeah. What's happening? What do we know? What do we not know? And yeah. do we know that we don't know? Yeah. And why is it important yeah. that we know? Yeah. And why is it important that we know that we don't know? That's very good. Yeah. And we have your friend on Dr. Mike Gurney. Yes. My old seminary friend. I can't wait to talk to him in just a few minutes. Uh, professor of theology at Multnomah University. Uh, formerly Multnomah School of the Bible, turned Multnomah College, now Multnomah University. But yeah, I'm excited to talk to him about um, trends that are happening in seminary education and in the church with regard to learning. And then you're going to do a segment and lead us in a conversation about something that's been happening on social media this week related to black mermaids. Yes. So (laughs) I'm not really... Like I said, I'm, I can get on Facebook, Twitter. I kind of leave alone. But this week I've seen a lot of posts and maybe I'm late to the game. But this whole subject about like the new um, Disney release of The Little Mermaid and Halle Bailey, not Halle Berry, um, was cast as the black as the mermaid. And as she happens mermaid. to be black, black. African-American. Um, and I have seen not... Um, you know, fake news or satirical things, but real people in real life that I am connected to having conversations and dialogue about why this is a problem and or why it's not. Yeah. And so, yes, do I think race is a thing behind it? Sure. But even more so, I want to talk about outrage culture. Okay. And just how I think in this day and age, everyone is speaking out about everything. We're all angry. Everyone, including Christians. And so I have some questions for you about outrage and outrage culture. And And even though Abby's not here, Mm -hmm. the chat box will still be live when we premiere the show. And Bob is going to be in there fielding questions. So if you have questions during the show, go ahead and type those in the chat box. And Bob's going to be there interacting with people. And Monique and I will have opportunity to read those questions back. Um, after the show premieres. So yeah, so get in on that chat box. Um, also, send us an email. Do you have email? Do you have a question? Yes. Reach out to us. Can we put up? There it is. Email. ATT Live. ATT Live. Live stream. stream. Yes, I almost forgot the stream. At gmail.com and we'll hit you back. Yes. Okay, let's bring in my dear old friend, Dr. Michael Gurney. 
There he Hi, is. Pacific Northwest. That's right. From the great state of Oregon. And uh, Mike oh, wait, and that's I. Not, that's, not, that's not my glory behind me. That's actually sunshine. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because the sun only comes out there about three days a year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We have one of those few days. So. <laughs> we caught you on a good day. Yeah. Now, Mike and I met about 25 years ago uh, when we were both students at uh, Talbot, and I was in the theology program, and he was in the MA in philosophy uh, program. And, and I was in first grade. And you were in first grade. <laughs> oh, thank you for making me feel so young. <laughs> I, just, I wanted to be a part of it. Sorry, friends. <laughs> Carry on. So Mike and I just struck up a friendship and we've stayed in touch all of these years. And it's just an absolute delight to have you here, Mike. And you. maybe you could just start off by telling us a little bit about yourself and, and your background. Yeah. So uh, after I finished Talbot, um, I went on to teach at uh, Multnomah University. At that time, it was Multnomah Bible College. Uh, since then, we have become a university. Uh, I teach mostly in the, uh, I'm the philosopher, uh, and I teach both philosophy and theology, since my PhD is in theology. With the, my, my dissertation looks at the relationship between philosophy and theology in the early modern period. So I'm, I'm kind of have one foot in philosophy, one foot in theology. And uh, so I've, I've been teaching over 20 years now, uh, mostly undergraduate, some graduate, and uh, I'm very active in my church. I go to an Anglican church, um, uh, which is, I didn't grow up, I, did, I grew up Baptist actually, but I've been to, I've been all different kinds of churches and, and Multnomah itself is, is not uh, affiliated with any particular denomination. So, uh, which is, I think one of the more reasons why I like the Anglican tradition, because it's fairly broad in it's, uh, especially in the conservative branch, which I belong to the ACNA. So, um, yeah, and uh, I'm the, a dad to two boys uh, and uh, one who will be starting in the fall at Multnomah yeah. University. Our kids are getting older, Mike. I know. That means we're it's, getting older. <laughs> it's, it's hard. A daily, daily reminder that I'm getting old. I know. <laughs> well, I, I'm so glad you came on because um, I there was a number of kind of a cluster of issues that I wanted us to talk about together. And sure. um there was a Ligonier sponsored study with Lifeway a couple of years ago, and I came across the results recently and I thought, wow, this is really interesting yeah. to kind of take the temperature of where we are as a church in terms of our, our knowledge. And uh, this was particularly a study looking at biblical literacy in what are called evangelical churches. And they had a very particular definition of evangelical and I'm going to throw Bob off by doing the slides in the wrong order here, but there it is. Look, he's a professional. Uh, evangelicals were defined by the study as those who had uh, the, the believe the Bible is the highest authority for what they believe that it's important to um, have a personal relationship with Jesus as their savior, that Jesus death on the cross is the only sacrifice that removes the penalty of sin and those who trust in Jesus alone as our Savior receive God's free gift of eternal salvation. So that a fairly specific definition of, of what an evangelical is and, and who they were serving, uh, surveying. But alarmingly, I mean, well, first of all, before I get to the alarm, the, the, on the upside, like their view of the Trinity was pretty solid. I think I have a graphic on that here that... Um, 
I'm glad to see that 97% of evangelicals affirm a view of the Trinity that that yeah. is sound, you know, that God is one true God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Like, yay for us. Yeah. You know, I, I don't know when I've heard a sermon, the last sermon I've heard on the Trinity, but hey, we're, we're doing okay in this department. We can pray for the other three percent. <laughs> But then look at this next uh, graphic here. We have religious belief is a matter of personal opinion. It's not about objective truth. We only had 60% agreeing with that. And that is a little disturbing. There's one more I wanted to show us. Um, that God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. We had 51% agreeing with that statement. So that just was, a, and people can go to the um, stateoftheology.com website to find out more of the um, stats there. But this is the one that really alarmed me is 78% of evangelicals affirmed that Jesus was the first and greatest created being by God. I don't know if Bob can pull that. There it is. 78%. Now, Mike, what theology is that reflecting? <laughs> well, this goes back to the, the, the heresy uh, with Arius. And, of course, uh, you guys were just talking earlier about the Jehovah's Witnesses who hold that, you know, who hold that view as well. And there's other groups out there, you know. But so that's a view that's been around for a long, long time and unfortunately uh, persists. And I think the fact that you know, that e people who would self-identify as evangelical and yet would affirm something that the church rejected that uh, originally at the Council of Nicaea and following as heresy um, gives it, I think gives us a pretty good snapshot that uh, there is a lack of theological understanding in the church today. And, and I, I, it saddens me, I think this is not just with you know, the typical person in the pew, even among, I think, pastors. Yeah. And, uh, and this is, this is a, a very disturbing trend. Well, I'm wondering as a, as a university professor who's been teaching theology for 20 years, um, are these findings consistent with what you've seen from Christian college students coming from Christian homes? Like that, that there's some things they're solid on. And then there's other things like we've, there's quite a lot of confusion. Yeah, I, yeah, I, it's my it's been my experience, and and it's, I see it as a trend uh, at my university, um, but in my interactions with others in academia, uh, especially in Christian academia, this is this is not isolated. It's pretty broad. Um, that uh, yeah, there is a, a growing level of ignorance, and and what I think is even interesting to me is. It's not just theology. It's what I'm seeing now is even it goes all the way down to the Bible. I mean, it used to be because, you know, theology, in my view, kind of builds on the foundation of biblical knowledge. And or at least it should, yeah. <laughs> especially in evangelical. Uh, but what I'm noticing is that in even among evangelicals is, you know, there's always been, I think, historically, uh, given the history of evangelicalism, American evangelicalism in particular, uh, there's always been this a little bit of leeriness towards uh, theology, you know, and uh, but the Bible is always kind of, you know, it's kind of this sacred, 
you know, source and, uh, you know, so, you know, so I remember back when I first started teaching, um, or even when I was a student before that, you know, people were like, okay, I love the Bible, but theology, I don't know. You know, they were kind of suspicious. Now what I'm seeing is it's not just theology that they have an antipathy towards, but I would say maybe not antipathy, but an indifference towards the Bible. That, that, that the Bible, in, in fact, I find among my students, and I think this is fairly representative, that a lot of my students struggle with biblical authority. They struggle with the relevance of the Bible. And I see this as part of a bigger problem. I see this as, I, I think our culture today I would I would describe our culture has been having what I call an epistemic crisis of authority. So talk to us a little bit yeah. about that authority. Like, what do you see yeah. happening there? Because the idea of biblical authority, maybe if we just define that, is to say that the Bible is is our ultimate authority. We ought to conform our life and our beliefs to what the Bible says. But you're saying you see a crisis of authority. Yeah, in other words. Who should we believe and why should we believe them? And I think this is, I think this is in part a larger issue in terms of the culture. I, I attribute a lot of this to the, the corrosive effects of postmodern thinking, postmodern thought, um, that has raised, ra- creates what we call a suspicion, a uh, hermeneutic of suspicion, you know, that, that, we, that we are suspicious about any, anyone or anything claiming to have authority. Now, while originally postmodernism was, you know, kind of in the ivory towers of academia, it's eventually has, has always, ideas always do, they, they filter their way down to the mainstream culture. So, so postmodernism think- might be understood as like the idea that truth is more uh, a, a result of your experience and your personal perspective. And so the yeah. idea that somebody has authority and is speaking truth it it, it kind of goes against that that worldview. Yeah, just as that one that one statistic that you showed, you know, that belief in objective truth. You know, postmodernism directly challenges that idea that there's objective truth. We can have all have our own truths, but there is no truth at a capital T per se. And so when you approach, when you have that mindset then, and you apply that to religious believers, including Christians, then you, what you have is, well, we, you know, and I even have, I've had my students say this, well, you know, we have our truth as Christians, but Muslims have their truth. Mormons have their truth. Buddhists have their truth. And who am I to say that their, that their truth is not truth? After all, we're not supposed to judge. You know, I mean, one of the most quoted verses of the Bible today is what? Judge not lest ye be judged. Right. You know, that's, and that's, and of course, <laughs> what I try to point out to people is that's, that's a self-refuting statement. Because to say that is to make a judgment about people who judge. In other words, all of us have to make judgments. Right. Intellectual and moral judgments. It's the nature of being an intellectual and moral person. Well, even what we're going to talk about later, outrage culture. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Everybody's making moral judgments. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, so, and, you know, in the name of tolerance, we're intolerant. I mean, it's just, it's a really, I think, a, a massive confusion that I think is, is, that's in the mainstream culture and now has filtered into the church because I think the church has, we have not done a good job 
of educating the people in our pews, including the young people. And so especially our young people, and, and I, I think part of it, and I think it's a complex issue, but I think part of this is public education. Uh, you know, I, when my kids were involved in an online charter school, I, I would go through their public school textbooks. And it was amazing how subtle some of these ideas were and they were gradually, you know, and it's, it's, it's these ideas have, you know, so now, um, you know, it's, it's, it's just it taken has almost, pardon the pun here, gospel truth that everybody has their own truth. That's just an assumed idea now so widely by, by so many in our culture. And so when you, so if you have that mindset, then, and, and I think it, that intrinsically discourages Christians from saying, okay, so, you know, what's my best recourse when it comes to my faith? Well, I'll make my faith personal and about experience rather than have any kind of intellectual substance and content. It's about you, how I feel. Go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. So I am sitting here and absorbing and learning. And one of the questions that I'm wondering is what do you think is happening with pastors like from the pulpit that's not trickling down into the pews or with like youth pastors that's not trickling down into the youth that's that is um, like countercultural almost because we are supposed to step outside and not be, I would say, a part of kind of the the cultural norms that we're seeing regarding things like truth and subjective truth and objective truth. And so how do, how are pastors and youth pastors like participating in continuing that culture? Does that make sense? No, that's a great question. Uh, you, know, you know, my sense is that what we're seeing as a trend, especially in, I think the, the evangelical non-denominational churches that um, especially your mega churches where a lot of these pastors have no formal theological training whatsoever. Hmm. And so what, what we're seeing, you know, what I'm seeing is the tendency in this, and this isn't just mega church. I, you know, I mean, it, this is, like I said, it's complex. There's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of blame to go around, uh, but is that, you know, what we see first of all is the, the tendency for churches now is to do topical sermons. Right. Now, there's nothing intrinsically wrong with topical sermons, but the problem is, is the way it teaches people how to read the Bible. It kind of teaches you to take a verse here and a verse here and yeah. a verse here. And then yeah. it, it doesn't, it, I'm noticing there's sort of a loss of reading through a book of the Bible in context and seeing how all the pieces of the parts of that particular book hold together. That kind of sermonizing has... Mm -hmm almost gone the way of the dinosaurs. You hardly ever get that anymore. Yeah. I mean, you rarely hear people do expository preaching, uh, talking about the Bible as a narrative. I mean, there are some good counterexamples to that that are out there. Uh, just, to, uh, you know, there's a thing called the Bible project. Yeah. I love the Bible I'm project. Alumni of Multnomah. Uh, I've seen some of their stuff. It's really good. And yeah. I think it's very, very, and I know uh, some of the people behind it, they were students of mine. Uh, you know, those, are the, but for the most part, what I've seen as a general trend is that one, we don't, we don't, how we teach the Bible or how we use the Bible even in the church, in the church and out of the church is very uh, ad hoc, very piecemeal, not very well thought out. And it doesn't, it doesn't respect the context of the text. I mean, proof text has always been a problem. I mean, uh, that's, that's, you know, especially in teaching, as someone who teaches systematic theology, I have to drill it into my student's head 
that when you look at a passage, you need to look at context, context, context. And uh, it's a mantra I, I use. They all know it now. Um, but but I think when the pastors are, are with the way they handle the scriptures in the pulpit, I think is a model to the people in the pew. And and it's just not the people are not getting how to read the Bible. And then, of course, uh, unfortunately, a lot of what happens in, in some of these churches is the only time that scripture is used as a kind of a pretext for what they really want to talk about. Exactly. I mean, so many of the sermons, is just one verse. Yeah. And they don't even hardly spend any time on the verse. They just use that as an introduction to their topic they want to talk about. Right. And like I said, once again, I think there are a lot of issues that we need to talk about, cultural issues. We need to talk about things like sex. We need to talk about things like marriage. We need to talk about things like, you know, uh, there's a lot of issues out there that we do need to talk about. Even politics, as dangerous as it is. I think that we need to talk about it, not in the sense of kind of promoting a particular candidate, but how do we think about these things? I, I teach ethics. Uh, you know, I find most Christians have not a clue on how to think ethically. Well, I want to go back to a point you made earlier about how so many pastors aren't even going to seminary anymore. I saw a, a, a story in Christianity Today that Liberty University which has one of the largest ministry schools in the country was laying off a bunch of faculty. Um, I've heard of other schools starting to lay off faculty and I'm wondering what is going on. Uh, do you, do you think that part of this trend is that fewer people are going to seminary? Yeah. You know, I know from some, some statistics that I've seen, that the tr general trend in seminaries today is, is downward, and it's been going on for quite some time. This is not a new phenomena. Um, it's, you know, uh, and of course, my own school, we started out as a, as a Bible college, uh, and we just, we've had to, we had to expand our offerings to stay, our, keep our doors open. I mean, that's just the reality, and, I, and I'm, you know, I'm all for, you know, I'm not opposed to a liberal arts, a Christian liberal arts university. I think, you know, like Biola, um, you know, Multnomah, I think, we're, you know, those aren't bad things. I think those are, you know, I think it's great to have a business program or a English program where you integrate that with a Christian worldview. But the problem I find, I, the trend I see, though, is that in order to do integration well, you have to have enough familiarity with Bible and theology to do that. And what I'm seeing is the the, the, the cutting down on both the seminary level as well as an undergraduate collegiate level, cutting down the, the number of Bible theology required hours, um, which then, you know, as a consequence, they really don't get, I think, sufficient exposure uh, to get to, to be able to have any kind of adequate understanding and ability to think well about the Bible and theology. And so, this, and it's, so it's, it's kind of a, on the one hand, you get, we're getting students that come in that, and what I'm seeing is the students that come into our, our this has been, like you said, this is a trend that's been going on for quite some time. It's not new. That are coming into our school, even kids who've grown up in the church who know almost nothing about the Bible, let alone theology. I kind I mean, of think, I kind of think of it like a, a biblical <laughs> fast food service. You know, yeah. like we're able to go through and get done so quickly, but we're not getting the nutrients that we need to live a healthy lifestyle or, or to have healthy information um, regarding theology. I mean, it used to be when I first started teaching, 
we'd have a few students that were fairly new Christians. So you, it's not surprising they wouldn't know much about the Bible, you know. Now it's it's almost like completely flipped where it's like you have a few students who do know some things about the Bible and the rest of them are, are even kids who've grown up in the church who just are, I mean, it's just, I had a colleague was telling me, uh, this was about a few months ago, he was making reference to a biblical story and it was a fairly well-known story. It wasn't obscure and half the students in his class were like, we have no idea what you're talking about. We, oh, wow. You know, they were just like lost. And the other ones that did have some idea, they still weren't, you know, they, were, they had this vague idea, but it was, you know, and it was just, uh, I mean, I have, I've gotten to the point now where in class, I have to, I have to, I cannot presume that my students know anything about the Bible. Which wow. is so interesting because we live in the internet age where knowledge yeah. is so much more available. I mean, when I tell people that I went to seminary, before the invention of the internet, people are like, what? I said, we had to go to this thing called the library. And there was this card catalog and I had to look things up in there and people just, it blows their minds. It, and yet I feel like things have gotten more watered down since the internet. It, instead of getting smarter and more informed, we're actually less informed. Yeah. I, I think it makes, makes for a dangerous, dangerous um, condition because given the exposure we have to various ideas now that, that you know, through, I mean, in human history, we have more exposure to ideas today than any, any time in human history. I mean, it's just incredible how accessible information is, both good ideas and bad ideas. And of course, you, all you have to do is go on, on Facebook and, and make a claim about the Bible and you're going to get all sorts of people who have very different opinions. So a lot of, a lot of them may be skeptical. And cynical, and there, and you get access to even scholarly uh, literature that is very critical of the Bible. So, you know, when you get that kind of access to information, and then people who are putting forth arguments and, and assertions and ideas, and you don't have a good handle on what you believe and why you believe it, you are really susceptible to, to, to at the very least, confusion. And and I'm finding more and more. Even and we're seeing this like with Barna and some of these other studies that we're losing our young people. Yeah. I'm wondering with so much information that is available, if people are starting to more and more have this presupposition that I am knowledgeable, like I have all of the information at my fingertips. I can get the knowledge that I need. I don't really need to study because it's all there anyway. And I probably know more than what I think because of the things that flash before my eyes so quickly. Yeah. Well, that's a, that's a great observation. You know, it's kind of, isn't it kind of ironic? On the one hand, we want to deny objective truth. And yet, you know, at least knowledge has, it's been traditionally understood, particularly in philosophy, but even more broadly, knowledge involves truth. You can't have, you can't know something that's not true. So, so given your observation that people are claiming to know things and yet deny objective truth, it makes for a very confusing um, culture of belief in, in, in knowledge and truth. And, you know, and, and I frankly, that's why I see a lot of Christians, especially younger people, what they do is they just kind of, they just kind of keep their faith to themselves. Yeah. You know, um, they, they rely upon their experience. And I'm not saying experience isn't, isn't a valid aspect of being a Christian. I think it certainly is. But then the problem when you start relying purely on experiences, everybody has experiences. I mean, every religion has 
you know, every religious believer has their own experiences and even atheists have experiences. So how do we judge between, you know, experiences in terms of determining what's true? Right. So it becomes a really a quagmire. What changes have you noticed over the last several years uh, in terms of the courses offered in seminary? I know that Talbot, even where we graduated from, they had an announcement a year or so ago of reducing their credit requirements. Like there's not as many courses that are actually required anymore for their programs, which I found super disheartening. But I'm wondering like what you see of what classes are being eliminated, what classes are being shortened, um, what trends are you seeing? You know, it used to be in almost every major denomination that in order to be ordained and have a a D-min or an MDiv, uh, you would have to have training in in the original languages, you know, to have some proficiency in Greek and Hebrew. That's gone. I mean, you know, it's... uh, rarely do you find people now who are pastors who have competency, uh, at least the newer pastors that are coming out. Um, So I think that was one of the first ones. And of course, this has been, this trend started quite a while, you know, I think back probably in the eighties and uh, into the nineties, that trend started. And now we're seeing it in terms of theology. I mean, certainly some of the, I think there's been weaknesses in our curriculum uh, I think the issue of cultural engagement, which has always been a struggle for the church. I mean, historically, the church has always struggled with how do we engage culture in a meaningful way? And there's finding that balance between, you know, um, you know, this kind of antithesis versus synthesis. And, you know, so there, these are complicated issues. But I, I think now we're seeing this kind of push more to, to, to engaging culture. But it's still, um, you know, it's... Um, uh, I don't know how to best describe it. it. It just seems like, I mean, you know, there's some practical theology classes as well that, that, um, that once again, I, I don't think they're necessarily, uh, I think they're good topics and stuff, but I think it's really shifted. And once again, I think this is reflective of the culture that we've shifted away from the theoretical to purely practical. Right. And like I said, I think, I think, you know, we need to, uh, we need to address practical theology. I, I'm not against that. But you have to have enough of a, of a basis, right? Knowledge of basic theological doctrines and concepts to, to build off that to, to have an adequate approach to doing practical theology. And you know, this has always been this is a, especially American phenomenon. I mean, America, we Americans have always been pragmatists, and and uh, in fact, that's where you know in philosophy, the school of pragmatism originated in America. That's not a coincidence. So we've always had this very strong pragmatic impulse going all the way back to our founding. But I think it's become even now more so with a postmodern twist. In fact, in philosophy, this is called neopragmatism. Oh, that's a new term for me. I haven't heard yeah. of that. Richard Rorty, probably, uh, who's now deceased, but he was probably one of the leading uh, neopragmatist philosophers, you know, very much, in, in, you know, whereas the early pragmatists like William James, and Charles Sanders Pierce and some of these other guys, you know, they, they believed in, in an idea of objective truth. But with the neo-pragmatist, it's, it's you know, tr- truth. It, there is no objective truth because it's purely pragmatic. Oh, interesting. So, so and I think that's, and that's, and that, that's really shaped how our culture at large. And I think the evangelical culture, including our seminaries. Well, along those lines, then, 
I've seen a shift of like seminary being considered less and less important, less and less valuable at all as an experience. And, you know, there's this old joke about how seminary really is just cemetery and people go there to lose their faith. Actually, my seminary years were some of the best years of my adult life. I really enjoyed that season quite a lot. Um, I was young and newly married and I found it quite interesting to, to be learning all of the things about scripture but I'm wondering, like, well, how would you respond to people that say, you know, Jesus didn't go to seminary. The disciples didn't go to seminary. They just had practical ministry experience. Why do they, why do, do people even need to go through this rigor in, in order to shepherd God's people? Yeah, I, th- I think that's a fair point. But I, would, I, I think I would respond by pointing out that keep in mind, that Jesus and his disciples lived in a very different culture. In fact, a culture that was saturated with the Hebrew scriptures. I mean, you as a young Jewish child, one of the first things you re- you learned to, to memorize was the Shema. And your whole life was built around the Torah. It, it was inculcated you in you. Uh, and of course, when you look at the disciples of Jesus, they spent three years with Jesus in a pretty intensive study. You know, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, uh, study with Jesus. And, you know, and especially, and of course, once again, early on with Jesus, you're dealing with almost a purely Jewish culture. Then when, when of course, Christianity starts expanding, and particularly with the apostles to the Gentiles, Paul, Paul is by all accounts. I mean, every every Pauline scholar out there talks will acknowledge that Paul was well-educated. He grew up in Tarsus, which was a major learning center in the Mediterranean. Uh, I, I, when I look at his discuss, his speech at Mars Hill in Acts 17, uh, this guy knows, he knows not just his own beliefs as a trained rabbi, he also knows the, the, the predominant philosophical schools of his day, Epicureanism and Stoicism, because he's able to engage in their, I mean, just what brief description we get from Luke, Paul nails it right on the head about the Epicureans and Stoics. He understands them. He's able to quote their poet, their philosopher poets. So that tells you that Paul is 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 pretty well educated, um, and I so I think that and I think when you look at the early church fathers, all of them even before this was even before the creation of the university, you know, in the in the, in the Middle Ages, there was a recognition that education is really important. And now, once again, the primary means was through discipleship, but it was a very intensive discipleship, and so I, I think that. Uh, I think one of the positive trends I see in seminary education today is uh, the recognition to integrate what happens in the classroom with what happens in the church and, and trying to do develop programs that are more hybrids where you're, you're engaging intentionally. I know at Multnomah, we've tried to do this with, with churches. And so I think they're, you know, and that's, a, I think that's a good trend. I, you know, one of the few positive trends that I see. Um, so I think that's, that's valuable. And I think that has been a weakness in seminary education. Um, I- Yeah. And I would second that. I mean, like as wonderful as my education was at Talbot, one of the things that it did not do was like, I never took a class on how to actually um, pray for the sick or cast out demons, like things that Jesus actually taught his disciples to do that I now have to do regularly in ministry. I had a class on the theology of, of demons, but like, actually, what do you do when somebody comes to you and has those issues and, and how do you deal with them and how do you cast them out? Um, that has been something I've had to learn totally after the fact, um, as I've worked in ministry 
And so, you know, I can understand and, and somewhat sympathize with the need for more practical ministry engagement. But at the same time, there's a lot of teachers that I enjoy. There's one teacher in particular, my husband, and I enjoy listening to on YouTube, but sometimes he falls into certain errors. And I just always say, I really wish somebody close to him would advise him to take a, a couple classes in systematic theology. Yeah. <laughs> I think it would really help him. Yeah, I think that's been, you know, this, like I said, this is a complex problem. And I think one of the issues that's been around for a long time uh, has been, we, we, you know, and this goes long, I think long before this crisis of epistemic authority that I've been talking about is that we, you know, the, the gap between the Sunday school and the seminary classroom is huge. And that's been a problem. And, that, and that's, I think a lot of that's on the seminaries. But another one I would tie into this, and here I think Dallas Willard, um, uh, you know, who wrote several books on this topic, talked about the lost art of discipleship. We don't do discipleship in the church or in the seminaries. Uh, and, and this is something, and, you know, and, and I'm not sure what the, what the solution is, is because to do, this, to, to do discipleship well is hard. It requires time. And it's very difficult in our, in our culture, in our lives, in the lifestyles that we lead. You know, we're very, very fast paced and we move around mobility, move around a lot. So it's really hard to do these things well, to, to, to provide a, a good context for discipleship. And, and, and as a consequence, and I think just the general trend in how churches do church is not conducive to discipleship. Big churches, uh, it's all about the music. Uh, or even if it's a church that has a strong preaching program, still what happens, you know, I mean, you do have small groups, but a lot of times it's almost like most, a lot of small groups, you know, I'm probably going to step on some toes here, but it's almost like a lot of these small groups are more about shared ignorance than they are about, you know, having actual discipleship where you're, you know, um, uh, you know, where people are actually learning things and older Christians are walking alongside younger Christians and not just in terms of what they believe, but how they live out these beliefs. And, and so, they, like I said, these are these are complex issues that, that have a number of factors and causes. Uh, there's not a simple solution to any of this. And, uh, you know, I, I think for me, sometimes I, get, I can get really depressed when I start thinking about this stuff. And I just have to remind myself that when I look at I look at the history of the church, I'm reminded about God's sovereign grace and, and his ability to, to take us at our worst and use us for great things. Yeah. And, and so for me, that's my, that's my hope, you know? Um, but, but also I think we have to respond to that. We have to respond. We have to say, how am I part of the solution rather than part of the problem? Amen. What, um, I, I have a huge interest in kids and parents. And so sure. one of my questions is, questions are is um what would you say to parents to help them in discipling their kids or help helping them what would help them in turning the tide from the biblical um illiteracy that is happening within the church to raising kids who are biblically literate yeah well that's a it's a great question monique um i wish i had an easy answer to that and as a father of two, it, it's, it's a struggle. Both, you know, I have two teenagers and, you know, and I, I think it has to start with in the home with being real and authentic, you know, and one of the things I hear a lot from my students who grew, most of whom have grown up in Christian homes and they struggle with hypocrisy. They see it. I mean, not just, I mean, not just their parents, I mean, in the church, 
I think we have to be real and authentic in our faith and be honest and say, look, I don't always live up to these Christian ideals. I'm striving to, but I don't always live up to them. And I think we, if, if our kids see how important the Bible is in our life and how we try to use the Bible, even if, even imperfectly, but we use it to, to shape our lives, to make our decisions, uh, to, to inform our values, and, and, and to cultivate the virtues that I think are consistent with being a Christian, what Paul calls the fruit of the Spirit, um, then, you know, that I, I think it's, it's, you know, I think it's more about what we do rather than what we say. I mean, we can sit there. I mean, I, and I in fact, I always, I, one of the things I observe is some of the kids we get, and I've seen this at others, I saw it at Viola as well, you know, the most rebellious kids came from homes where the parents were just, you know, hardcore, you know, very strict uh, you know, and, and, and there was a Bible verse behind everything they did. And it was just, they were kind of pushing it on their kids in a way that just was, you know, overwhelmed, you know, for the kids, they just, they weren't given room to breathe. And, and, and of course the, the kids and kids are really good. My kids included at perceiving our weaknesses and our, and our inconsistencies, dare I say hypocrisies. So, you know, I think it's about being real and authentic and just trying to live out our faith in, in a way that's, that just, it's just, it's authentic. Yeah. And, and, and trying to, um, but like I said, it's, it's an uphill battle because once again, we're having to fight against the culture. You know, my kids have smartphones. It's almost a necessity now. And you can't, you know, it's like they have, you know, they just have immediate access to, to all sorts of bad stuff as well as yeah. good stuff. Yeah. I think that too, um, we're going to be having a guest on the show in the future, my friend Natasha Crane, who really specializes in exactly what you're asking, Monique, is about discipleship as parents and how do we incorporate conversations, intentional conversations around theology and apologetics issues with our kids. And I can't wait to have Natasha on the show because it'll be an awesome extension yeah. of, of this discussion of getting into some practical uh, application of, of those issues. And I think, Mike, it's so important um, that you nailed it, like the issue of authenticity. Um, sometimes just telling your kids, like, we might know in our heads why we're making certain life choices, but it's important for us to speak them out and explain them to our children. I do this because I, I'm going over here to bring a meal to someone in a hospital because I'm doing this, um, helping the homeless because my faith informs me to, and just making that an intentional part of our conversation about why we do what we do and not just why do we believe what we believe. And it, it really has to be both. Yeah. I, I like to, I teach ethics and, you know, in my view, ethics is really our theology applied. And one of the things I see, is that a lot among my students is, and I think, like I said, this is, I think, fairly representative of evangelicals, is the reason why we do things, the right thing as opposed to the wrong thing, is because, you know, we're, that's what God says. And, and it creates this almost legalistic mentality. And, and, I, and I, I think it's important that, yes, I think God has given us certain moral commands, and we were to follow them and obey them, but it's not just done because out of a sense of legalistic obligation. It's done out of a sense of love and joy. I love God, what he's done for me, the fact that he's brought me into a, a redeemed relationship with him. And that as a consequence, the outgrowth of that is that I want to follow him in obedience. 
And, and I, I think one of the things we have to work against is, is this a, a culture that just buys into moral relativism. And, and, I, and I even hear a lot of Christians say, well, you know, um, you know, we're free in Christ and we don't have to, um, we don't have to, uh, you know, we're, we don't want to be legalistic. And, and I agree, we don't want to be legalistic. But on the other hand, we don't want to go to the other extreme as well and just say, well, it's, it's just everything's fair game and I can do whatever I want because I'm in Christ. Uh, no, right. if, if Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. Right. And, and, but I think, and so bringing that here. So it's really important when I, when I talk with my kids, when I go through, when I go through making decisions and especially, you know, that, and often they involve a moral, have a moral component to them. I, it's important for me to explain to them why I do the things that I do, why I make the choices that I make. And um, that it's not just a sense of, well, here's a Bible verse. Right. Reason. I mean, there's a reason why, for example, I mean, you know, the big issue is the sexuality. There's a reason why God commands or, or, or has designed sex to be within the parameters of marriage. It's not that God is a cosmic killjoy and he wants to ruin our sex lives. In fact, I think there's empirical evidence to support the fact that if we follow God's ideals for sex, we'll have a more satisfying sex life than if we just engage in this hookup culture that's out there. Yeah, you know, and so explaining that to our kids, and like when I talk about sex in my ethics class, it's amazing to me when my students tell me that they've never, you know, that this is to, almost a lot of this is new to them. I mean, they, they understand they're not supposed to have sex outside of marriage, you know, basically just say no, but to explain to them why. Yeah, you know, and and then it is, and I think that's what we have to be able to explain why we believe the things that we do believe when it comes to about theology or when it comes to ethics or about practical Christian living. We need to explain why. Yeah. We have to take it deeper than that. But of course, once again, I think part of the problem is for a lot of Christians, they can't take it deeper than that because they really don't know. Yeah, they haven't informed themselves of the why a lot yeah. of times. So, yeah. well, Mike, it's been great to have you on. I'm so well, glad you that you're willing to do this. Thank you so much. Yes. And um, I'd love to have you on again sometime. Maybe we yes. can talk about some more theological topics. I always thoroughly enjoy interacting with you and just glad to introduce you to uh, our All the Things family. So thank you so much. And well, thank you for having me on. Yeah. And so my friend, Dr. Michael Gurney, everyone. Thank you. All right. May the Lord be with you. Yes. And also with you. All right. All right. What did, you, what did you think? Did you learn some things? Learned a lot of things. <laughs> Learned a lot of things. All the things. Yes. And it is important to understand what is happening, not just like what's happening in the church, but what is happening and coming out of the pulpit. And, you know, if, if what's coming out of the pulpit isn't sound, even though it may sound nice, if it isn't sound, it's leaving parishioners in a place of biblical famine yeah, and starvation. Yeah, that's such a great analogy because it's, I love what Mike said is how pastors handle the scripture provides a role model that then people copy in the pews. And if we're always just digesting topical sermons about love and relationships or whatever, mm -hmm. um, how God can help you handle all your problems, then we're not really learning how to read scripture properly because nobody's showing us. And then I, I think famine is the perfect analogy because I think a lot of people 
are starving to death, only yeah. they don't know it. Mm-hmm. And then when you start giving them solid food, they're like, whoa, where has this been all my life? Mm-hmm. I get those letters all the time yeah. of, I found your channel. I'm so excited to get solid teaching. I I, I wish I had had this for so long. I think a part of it too is um, pastors perhaps being afraid that people won't want to sit through all of that. Mm. You know, like in Isaiah times, yeah. you know, when they had the scrolls, people, there weren't, people weren't walking around with the handy dandy Bible app or, yeah. you know, let me go and pick up my Bible. They were scrolls and they were big and you just didn't walk down the street with them <laughs> and not everyone had access to them, right. but people memorized huge chunks of scripture. And even in the new Testament, you see the, the, like, reciting of scripture from the old Testament, not because they had the scrolls with them per se, but because that was how they learned. They learned the scriptures in huge chunks. And so I'm part of what I'm wondering is, you know, I wonder if there's a fear that, Hey, nobody's going to want to sit in church and memorize, you know, a huge chunk of scripture or are many people willing to sit while, you know, a pastor reads a chapter or yeah. two chapters so that you can get the full context. It's quicker and it's easier kind of that drive through mentality that yeah. I was talking about for people to come in, get my fries, you know, my, my, my little nugget yeah. of truth for the week. My and encouragement. Then, yeah. And then yeah. we go on with that, but not really understanding that that's not a proper exegesis of scripture. Yeah. It's just it's not, not a good healthy. diet. Yeah. It's yeah. not healthy. I mean, one of the best sermons I've heard recently was our pastor just this last Sunday. He just went through like three extended passages of scripture. He just read them, gave very minimal comment about them. And that was it. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was great. I actually really enjoyed that. It was kind of just letting the scripture speak for itself. So yeah, it, this will be kind of the foundation for an ongoing, a lot of topics you and I have been talking about that we'll have coming in the future on the show, but just laying the groundwork for hey, let's step back and take our temperature here a little bit before we're a little too critical of Jehovah's Witnesses and talking about all of their, what we consider peculiar beliefs. Do we even really know what we believe? Mm-hmm. And so, I don't know. And I even see some tie into uh, the whole thing you're going to want to talk about of uh, outrage culture. So let's talk about mermaids. So, yes, <laughs> mermaids. <laughs> and not necessarily mermaids, but this, I think, is the hotbed topic of the week. Disney, like I said earlier, Disney cast um, a young black actress to be the new Ariel in The Little Mermaid. I really can't see it. It's one of my favorite movies. I know all the songs. I can't even lie. I was singing one this morning. Um, But one of the things that I noticed was that people started to lose their mind. And I was like, wow, I'm not really sure exactly what happened, but why is everybody losing their mind? It's a fish. <laughs> it's not like it's a mythical creature, a people. Myth- <laughs> She's a fish. You know, it's not like we're taking or that Disney took something that was historical. Yeah. And I mean, yes, the original Little Mermaid story came out like in the mid 1800s, but it's not like we're trying to t- do something like with Mulan. Right. 
where this is set in a specific historical context. It's it's set like in a Mulan sort of has to be Chinese. Yes. That wouldn't and work if she wasn't. It wouldn't. Yeah. Can you see a little black girl running around, <laughs> you, like with a little Afro? And, you know, it wouldn't work. It would right. be, to me, disrespectful of the culture. Ariel is a fish. <laughs> I don't know that it's so disrespectful of the culture of the fish. Now, maybe if Ariel, who is a mermaid, had been replaced by a shark, <laughs> you know, maybe somebody has something to say. But but people lost their minds on social did. media this week. And one of the okay, so I oh, there was a group called Christians Against the Little Mermaid, and I joined this group because I wanted to know really what was going on. And there were more than one. <laughs> there group. were questions there, you had to answer. Yes, there were questions that I had to answer, and I'm not going to even go into those questions because some of those questions are a little over the top. But there were more than one um, group of people who were, you know, against the little mermaid and some were, you know, in fun and in jest and things like that. And, but when I went into this group, there were serious comments. Like why do people of color need to be represented in everything? Why are they always wanting to be seen? Um, why does Disney have to, to now join in with the liberal culture of making everything um, inclusive of people of color? And so I'm, what's interesting is these fake there some some people think these groups are satire and, yes. and maybe they are but real people joined them yes. and made real comments yes. and were asking real questions yes and <laughs> I even have friends that I am connected to who have posts on their Facebook feeds and are wondering the exact same thing so it's not like yes this is a satire group and you know it's just all in jest but no my real friends I had a face-to-face conversation with someone who asked me why can't you make your own fish story (laughs) (laughs) my response was why can't my kids and cousins also feel connected to Ariel? like it it, and, and at the end of the day while it can be about race I also am intrigued by this whole outrage culture. And that's more of what I yeah. want to talk about than like this whole black, white diversity. She's a fish. Get over <laughs> it. She's a fish. But why do, and I'm going to speak from a, a viewpoint of why do Christians think that it's so important to join in with the outrage narrative? Well, I, I think that's a very provocative question because um, you and I were talking about this and I, it just strikes me that like, you know, you go in your Facebook feed and everyone's taking a position about the fish. And I'm thinking, are, are we aware of what we're doing and how much energy we're spending talking about a fish? And then you got to have a position about the mermaid. And if you don't take the right position, then you're on the wrong side of history. And the wrong side of the conversation is like, Really? Is that what we really want to be doing? Yeah. And I'm, I'm like, if you are not a Christian, if you don't believe in Christ or follow that viewpoint and worldview, that's okay. Go and join the outrage. But how would Christ compel us to speaking out about such things? And one, I don't think you should speak out about a fish. If you have enough time to speak out about a fish, you need to go find a hobby. You need to read a book. You need to do something else. But there are other things. And this, I, I do want to preface it by saying the people who were speaking out again about the fish situation were white. 
But that does not mean that blacks don't participate in outreach, outrage culture. And I wanted to say that because it, well, I started people in, in that with group, this by the way, they don't speak for all white people. No, no, I, I they don't speak for I all Christians. I know that they was a little crazy. It was a little crazy. But what is it about the outrage culture? Yeah. I'm wondering that compels Christians to feel like they need to join in with this as well. And yeah. Yeah, like I said, I, I, don't speak out about a fish, folks. Just don't. <laughs> don't email me about no fish. Don't put nothing on Twitter. I don't want to see it in my Facebook feed. So it is a provocative question, though, is like, why do Christians jump into this? Like, you know, let's assume that the Facebook group was satire originally, but there were real Christians joining that group. Oh, yeah. And they were upset. In the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus about the Black Mermaid. And I just am sitting there thinking, you know, what are we doing and and why are we doing it? And I going back to our earlier conversation with Mike, I think that because there's like this vacuum that's been created in so many Christians that we really don't know what we believe or why we believe it on many respects, something that just then appears in our Facebook feed that's sort of outrage culture. Well, here's the Christian position. I better do this. I didn't know Christians had a position on fish. (laughs) But it's because we don't really know how to even prioritize our beliefs. So we think that taking a position about a fish or red cups at Starbucks or eating at Chick-fil-A, like these are the big issues in the Christian worldview right now. And yet we can't really define properly who Jesus is. I'm like in the hierarchy of ideas this is not a big idea that we should be concerned with. But I think that Christians a little bit, conservative Christians at least, have a little bit of a persecution complex. And we're feeling like the culture is becoming so secularized and so postmodern, as Mike was talking about earlier, that we're, we're, we feel panicked about it. So anything that we think strikes as liberal we're going to speak out against it, which it's to me, a black Ariel is not a liberal conservative issue because it's not even a Christian. Issue. I mean, like on some level, like in all seriousness, if it were, then that would mean skin color is a liberal issue. Yeah. And that's a whole nother conversation that we won't get into. Yeah. Because that I think. As a person of color, that speaks volumes exactly to what I experience and see in a lot of conservative spaces. But we'll hold that. But then we wonder why our friends who are people of color think that so many white people are bigots. It's because we join groups like Christians against mermaids yes and then they see that we belong to these groups and they think you're a bigot this is part of the problem we need to check ourselves to have put the the things the hierarchy in the right way yeah you know like christians need to be about the business of worshiping the trinity and knowing who jesus is and understanding our salvation if we're expending so much energy and participating in outrage culture about black mermaids, what are we doing? I don't know what we're doing. Yeah, I don't either. <laughs> um, I, so 
Along the lines of outrage culture, I read this article sent out by the Gospel Coalition um, last month, maybe a month before, um, about outrage culture. And some of the thoughts behind it were that we can use outrage culture to speak the gospel, that we can, um, that outrage culture shows us some of the parameters of sin and how all humans have fallen short of the glory of God and that outrage culture wants to or seeks to speak out against wrongs just as Christ compels us to understand sin and how, you know, we also fall short. And I don't know, I was kind of like, I I understand kind of, but what it didn't speak to was how do we, if all of those things are true, how do we live within a culture that is on the slant of outrage, but us not necessarily participate? We don't have to be all up in arms, or should we? Yeah. Is that the road that Christ has called us to? Well, and we're constantly in a mode of, like, in Beauty and the Beast, to use another Disney movie, mm-hmm. of kill the beast! You yes. know, we're just like this all the time. You know, where's the pitchfork? We're going to run and catch the beast. And and that's how we're showing up in public and on social media to me as a public venue. Um, I think that it portrays us as putting so crazy. Well, yeah, (laughs) a lot of times I think it does portray us as crazy because non-Christians are watching and it's like, what are we emphasizing? What are we communicating to people of what Christianity is really about? And um, I think outreach culture is interesting because people actually do believe there are some things that are right and wrong. Like you can talk about being a moral relativist and it's all up to you and your personal truth and my truth and your truth. But but there is some collective knowledge that this is right and this is wrong and you better take a position and you better be on the right side of the, the conversation, which I think that that does provide a provocative kind of gospel oriented question of why do you think that certain things are right or wrong? Where do you get the standard Mm -hmm. that that is more right than that, or that is wrong or evil to me, that could be potentially a bridge if used in a wise and discerning way to ask someone, how did you arrive at that conclusion that, that, black mermaids are okay and that that's a moral issue. Like, how did you arrive there? How did you arrive at your beliefs about X, Y, and Z? And I think that that could be a legitimate um, potential bridge builder. But on the other hand, as far as Christians go, I think we got to check ourselves because James, uh, the Lord gives us a, a strong admonition in the book of James I think it's in James chapter three. It says, uh, with the tongue, we praise our Lord and father. And with it, we curse human beings who have been made in God's image out of the sound. Same mouth comes praise and cursing my brothers and sisters. This should not be. Yes. And so when we're keyboard warriors and we're ready to go to war with outrage culture and what we're saying about other people, their motivations, like people just make so many comments as if they can see right into the heart of the other person mm-hmm. that they've never met, don't know, don't know anything about, but this is why you said this. We are cursing our fellow human beings and they're created in God's image. And thus the, these things should not, should not be. We, we need to check ourselves, I think a little bit 
And it's hard. Like, have you ever noticed how much outrage culture is such an invitation to come into agreement with things? Like, it calls on, like, the most basest part of you that, like, yeah, I want to take a position on that. It's like, hey, whoa, slow your roll. You know, uh, what are we really doing here? How are we presenting ourselves to our non-Christian friends who are watching? I don't know. I don't know. Those are some of my thoughts about it. Okay. But I'm not sure it's emotionally healthy to be angry all the time. There should be a study on that. Well, I'm sure there is already. <laughs> but I do agree. I think that um, if we are constantly in outrage, where do we find our position of love? Yeah. For always or in a patience. position of division and disagreement rather mm-hmm. than love, kindness. Um, yeah. Where's the fruit of the spirit in that? Yeah. 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 I don't see a fruit called outrage. <laughs> that might be, might be pretty f- bitter. <laughs> Uh, work of the flesh. <laughs> it might be. It might be. Um, but as we wrap up, yes. Thanks for entertaining my mermaid situations. <laughs> I can't even believe it. Um, but we should tell everyone to check out your new video that is up. Yeah, I'm gonna try to get something up in the next day or two from the the next installment in the Mops series. It's quite a longer video. So it's taking me a little more time than I thought to to assemble and put together. I'm going to try to get it in there um, talking about um, is there doctrinal drift going on at the at Mops International or is it all just a, a big misunderstanding? So that's coming. Then I made an announcement yesterday on my Facebook page. Um, my next teaching series is going to be on what is the Christian's relationship to the Mosaic law? Mm. That seems to be a, a very common question that I think lurks behind a lot of cultural conversations we're having um, things related to the LGBT question, things related to race um, conversations in progressive Christianity. Mm-hmm. I see the questions about what our relationship is to the law behind a lot of those things. So I'm going to do an extended series on that on my awesome. YouTube channel. So people can watch for that in the coming weeks. So and yes. the, the show is available on Spotify, Google Play, Apple, Apple Podcasts. Podcasts. So if you can't catch the whole YouTube video, just go subscribe to the audio. Yes. On the on the podcast. So, awesome. Yeah. Listen to it while you drive. Yes. But don't watch it while you drive. Don't don't do that. That's not good. No. Yes. And I do want to thank uh, someone who stepped up uh, this week to support us in our ministry. Awesome. And has just been so blessed by what we're doing. And I'm really grateful and appreciative of her uh, supporting us financially. Yes, thank you very much. Yes, we greatly appreciate that and can save up for some uh, uh, better equipment. I'd really like to, a couple things that we would like to do to help improve our process here. And um, just so grateful also for the shares. That's another way you can support us. Sharing the posts, sharing the, sharing Liking the show. the posts. Yeah, commenting. Yeah, asking questions. Yeah. So, all right, everyone. That's it. That's it. That's all the things for this week. Thank you. And we love you. And God bless. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.